You may be seated. Well, as we come to the time of uh, our sermon today, uh, I actually have a question for the adults today instead of the kids. So the adults are on the spot this week instead of the kids. And this is to all adults, whether you have kids or not, because every adult, I promise, can answer this question, all right? So the question is, what is the first and the biggest complaint that any child has when things don't go the way they think they ought to go? When it doesn't go the kid's way, what is the first and biggest complaint that any child has? You can call it out to me. That's not fair. That's not fair. I heard it. Now, Kids, let's be honest. Let's be honest. Raise your hand if you've ever claimed that's not fair. If you've ever, yeah, I know of at least three hands that ought to be up and, and they're sitting right over there. Uh, and really all of us ought to have our hands up, right? We've all said that before. Uh, now, now, kids, uh, I don't want to just let the adults have all the fun. So now's your turn to pick back at them, okay? Because what does every adult say in response to your plea that something isn't fair? You can call it out to me. Exactly. Life's not fair, right? Right? Now, my question for all of you is this. Which one is right? B- both of them, really, right? I mean, there are lots of situations in the world where things are not fair, where things don't happen the way that it would be just and right and and good in the way that they ought to, right? So the kids are definitely right when they let us know that something isn't fair, right? But at the same time, the adults are kind of right too, aren't they? Because in the way that our world works, things aren't always fair and just, And so the adults are right and the kids are right too. But let me ask you this question. Which of those do you wish was right? Yeah. Don't you wish we lived in a world where injustices were acknowledged and addressed? Or do you like living in a world where injustices are kind of ignored and just shrugged off because that's just the way things are? Don't we want the world that our children cry out for, where injustices are addressed and wrongs are made right? I know that I do. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about in our sermon today, kids, how the cross of Christ takes our, that's not fair, and makes it fair. And so during the sermon, I want you to think about a couple of things. First, I want you to think about some things that have happened in your life that really weren't fair. Some ways that you've been treated wrongly, where where things happen that you know just aren't right, that aren't fair, that aren't good. And then on 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 the sheet, if you have one of the kids' sheets today, I want you to draw a big kind of block letter cross right in the, in the middle of the place where you can draw it. And I want you to write some of those things that, that were unfair um, on the cross. It's kind of like your way of, of putting it up there on the cross. If you had a, a hammer and nails, it'd be how you would nail it there onto the cross. And during the sermon, I want you to think about how does what Jesus did on the cross deal with those unfair things in life, okay? Well, church, this week as we are uh, continuing in our Lenten sermon series on the cruciality of the cross, where each week we are looking at at one of the different 
facets, one of the different angles, a, a different aspect of, of the work that Christ accomplished upon the cross. And we're considering uh, what does that uh, work that Christ did, what impact does it have on our lives? The, the whole point, as we've mentioned, the whole point of this series is, is as Swedish theologian Emil Brunner has said, that he who understands the cross aright understands the Bible, they understand Jesus Christ. And so we're doing this series in order to help us understand the cross, what's really happening in, in the cross, what is actually being accomplished when Jesus died for our sins. So it's, we're doing it to help us understand the cross in order that we might better, deeper, more fully understand our scriptures, in order that we might better fully understand and know our Lord, and ultimately that we might love Jesus more. So this is a worthy pursuit uh, that we are in this season of Lent. Last week we began uh, this series by looking at the problem of sin from the human perspective, right? We considered the dilemma, uh, uh, the debt that we owed uh, for our sin and the dilemma that that put us in and how upon the cross, Jesus died as a sacrifice in order to address the problem of our guilt, right? Um, That was how the cross addressed the problem of sin from our perspective. This week, we're looking at the same problem of sin, but we're looking at kind of from God's side of the equation. Uh, and, and, and the problem that our sin causes for a righteous and a just God. And the truth of the matter is, is that the presence of sin and, and evil in the world has always caused a real problem for God. The, the existence of evil and God's seeming unwillingness to deal with it is one of the main arguments that atheists have used in order to justify their rejection of God for thousands of years. This argument is at least as old as the 4th century BC, when Epicurus, a Greek philosopher, espoused these complaints against the gods. The argument was modernized and popularized in, uh, by the 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume, in his book, Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, in which he wrote, Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? He's basically arguing That if God wants to get rid of evil but isn't able to, then he's not powerful. And if he's able to get rid of evil but he's not willing to, then he's not good. And if by some chance he is all-powerful and ultimately good, then how in the world do we explain the presence of evil in the world? And so Hume uses this argument of evil as a trump card against even the plausibility of God. And throughout the centuries, many have agreed and continue to agree with that line of reasoning. And it's not just atheists who level this accusation against God. God's own people have often wrestled with this dilemma as well. We heard it in our Old Testament reading this morning from Psalm 73. As the psalmist Asaph looked at the world around him, 
He acknowledged the way that it seems that evil flourishes in the world. And, and as he considered that, he said it nearly caused him to, to stumble. He was envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He observed that they had no needs, that they were fat and sleek, which apparently was a good thing back then, that uh, they were not stricken and had no troubles like the rest of mankind. He said that they were prideful and violent and that they threatened oppression. And as a result, they were, they were always at ease and they were ever increasing in riches. Asaph observed that the wicked people seemed to flourish because of their evil ways. And there seemed to be no consequence. Asaph isn't the only one who noticed this. Job did as well, noting that the tents of the destroyers prosper and those who provoke God remain secure. The wicked prosper with no consequence, says Job. Over and over again, this is acknowledged in the scriptures by the saints of God. Jeremiah says, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all of the treacherous thrive? The prophet Malachi noted that in his day, they called the arrogant blessed because the doers of wickedness were built up. They tested God and they escaped unharmed. Perhaps the most profound example of this comes from the writer of Ecclesiastes, who is famous for, for the observations that he made about the world and the way that everything works under the sun. And his observation was that he saw all of the oppression that was done on the earth and that the oppressed had no one to help them and that power was always on the side of the oppressor. And we continue to see those realities in our own day as well, don't we? The way our world operates is still grossly unjust. It is often the weak and the poor and the vulnerable who suffer most at the hands of the wicked and the deceitful and the greedy. I mean, think of innocent victims of war and violence who suffer great loss and are displaced from their homes with no recourse at all available to them as to how to make a situation right. Think of the naive and trusting, often uneducated or elderly who get exploited by predatory internet schemes. They have their identities compromised and their money stolen from them, causing great difficulty and hardship. And these invisible robbers just disappear. There's no way to track them down or to find them. I mean, think about those who are bullied at school or bullied at work, who are at the mercy of the stronger, more influential adversary with no way to get out from underneath the thumb of their oppressor. On the other hand, consider those who have accumulated vast fortunes by trampling upon the little people through corrupt business practices. Think of those who live with seemingly unlimited power and influence while governing by means of terror and extortion and at times murder. What about those who get rich and live in luxury by blinding officials with bribes or by cheating the government with their taxes? The same is true today as it was thousands of years ago, as it has always been. The wicked prosper with oftentimes no apparent consequence for their wrongdoing. Is it any wonder then that we grow up in this world crying out, that's not fair? It's not. 
And we know that from the very earliest of ages. This is a world of monstrous injustice. If you were to look at our world and consider only what the eye can see, it is understandable that the psalmist Asaph nearly loses his faith as a result of what he saw. It's understandable that the writer of Ecclesiastes is ultimately led to the conclusion that it is better to be dead than alive, and even better yet to have never been born at all. I mean, what a terrible conclusion to come to. But what an understandable one when you consider the great suffering and the real injustice that so many people in this world have to suffer with. This is the problem of evil in the world. It leads those without faith to deny God. It leads those with faith to question God. And it leads the casual observer of the world to wonder if it wouldn't be better off to have never been born at all. Life is not fair. And this evil in the world and the injustice that it creates, it causes a real dilemma for God. Because we all want a world of justice. We all want the world where things are right. We all want a God who deals justly with evil and with wickedness in the world. I mean, atheists reject the idea of a God who won't do that. Christians question God when he doesn't do that, right? None of us are okay with a world where wrongs aren't made right. And guess what? God isn't either. God isn't either. Throughout the scriptures, God is described as a God of righteousness and justice. Psalm 89 says that righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. It is the very core of who he is. In Deuteronomy, Moses says that God's work is perfect and all of his ways are justice. Just and upright is he, declares Moses. Justice is a part of of God's very character. It's essential to who he is. The scriptures tell us that he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He carries out justice for the oppressed. He establishes equity in the earth. The Lord is a God of justice. He loves justice, but he loves us also. And that's where the problem arises. Because in the same way that we had a dilemma last week's, in last week's sermon, where we were guilty with no way to pay for our guilt, God has the dilemma this week. He loves justice. And part of his character is to be just. He cannot betray that. He can't just let wrongdoing go unpunished. But if God is to deal with justice, it means that he must deal with those who create injustice. And that is us. Because as we were reminded last week, none of us are righteous. And so nobody wants a world where justice isn't dealt with. And none of us want a world where justice is dealt with. And so the dilemma for God is how does he get rid of injustice in the world without getting rid of those of us who cause the injustice of the world? How does he get rid of one without getting rid of the other? And this brings us once again to the cruciality of the cross. And as it was last week for us, so it is this week for God. That the great dilemma which is faced 
can only find its solution in the cross of Christ. For you see, the problem was that justice must be administered, but that it could not be administered according to our performance with the law, or else we wouldn't survive, right? That was the dilemma that God finds himself in. And so God found another way. If, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, where, where Paul describes this way. This was our New Testament reading for this morning. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21, leading up to this point, Paul has been arguing uh, for the, about the universal guilt of all people and how no one is able to keep God's law. That led to the dilemma that we found ourselves in last week and that God finds himself in this week. And in response to both of those, Paul writes in verse 21, But now a righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. Paul is saying that God found a way to make things right. He found a way to do justice that didn't require us to have to perfectly follow the law. God found a different way to bring about the righteous requirements of the law. And the way that God did that, Paul describes in verse 24, was by giving righteousness to us as a gift. He says that we were justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, I know that's an incredibly confusing sentence. Uh, I will agree with Peter who said that Paul writes many things that are difficult to understand, okay? I will agree with that. This is difficult to understand. But what Paul is basically saying is this, that we receive righteousness. We receive justification. We receive a right standing in the presence of God because of Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice in order to appease the demands of the law on our behalf, okay? And so instead of us having to meet the demands of the law, instead of us having to be perfect and, and dying for our sins because we aren't able to meet those demands, Jesus does so for us. He perfectly follows the law and then he pays the penalty for our sins by giving his blood upon the cross. He takes our guilt upon himself and he gives to us his righteousness, if we will receive it by faith. Amen. Amen. Now, these ideas are, are often uh, most clearly and most effectively communicated through the illustration of a court of law. Okay? And so, uh, to illustrate what Paul was communicating as to how justice was administered apart from following the law, I want you to envision a courtroom. Uh, when someone who looks just like you comes in before the judge... And everyone knows, including yourself, that you are guilty of committing the crime for which you are being charged. The crime is serious, and it carries with it a significant penalty that the defendant would never be able to pay on their own. When the judge comes out from his chambers and enters the courtroom, the defendant realizes that the judge is their father. As the child breathes a sigh of relief, the judge is noticeably distraught. The child begs their father for forgiveness. 
And the father wants to forgive his child, but he knows that according to the law, he cannot. As the judge, he must uphold justice for each person, or else he knows that the law will become meaningless to all people. And so the child begins to despair. And just when the situation begins to seem hopeless, when the child is doomed because of their guilt and the father is stuck by the requirements of the law, something surprising happens. The judge finds a path to righteousness apart from the child's obedience to the law. And so the judge comes down off of his bench, draws near to his child, pulls out his checkbook and writes a check from his own account for the entirety of the child's fine and offers it to them. Upon accepting the gift from their father and applying it to their own debt, the child is declared innocent by the judge. He declares that their debt has been paid in full and that they are free to go. In the eyes of the judge, justice has been paid. And in the eyes of the father, the beloved child is spared. The righteous requirement of the law has been met apart from the child's ability to follow it. And upon the cross, this is what God has done for each and every one of us. In order to remain a just judge, which we all want him to be, and in order to demonstrate his love to us, which we all need for him to do, God himself came down from heaven and upon the cross paid the penalty for our transgression. And by covering the debt that we owed through his self-sacrifice upon the cross, God did not lay aside his just and righteous character by which he promises to bring about justice. Yet neither did he forsake the children that he loved. And all of this is summarized in Paul's statement at the end of our reading from Romans when he says that God becomes both just and the justifier. He remains just in accordance with the law and became the justifier by providing the means for making the guilty innocent. He is a righteous judge and he is a gracious redeemer. And it's only possible because of the cross of Christ. And so the cross, it solves God's dilemma with justice. But it does more than that. It also solves our problem of that's not fair. Because when we really think about it, and when we re- apply the reality of the cross to uh, our lives and to the unfairness in our lives, what we see is that the cross of Christ takes all injustice and makes it just. It takes all of the wrongs and makes them right. It takes all of our that's not fairs and it makes them fair. Do you see that? The reason that is the case is because every wrong that has ever been committed or that ever will be committed has been addressed by God at the cross. This is what Paul reminds us and what he meant in our reading from Romans when he said that in his divine forbearance, God has passed over former sins. And Paul is saying that, that all of the sins that were ever committed prior to the cross, God held in reserve so that he could deal with them at the cross. And the apostle Peter, 
in his second letter to the church, says that in regards to all of the sins and the wrongdoing and the injustice that has happened since the cross up until this present day, that all of that God is being patient towards us in, in the current delay of his dealing with injustice, that he is not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter is saying that even now God is currently withholding his judgment upon the world in hopes that they will receive his offer of the cross. And so all of the sins and the wrong in the world that occurred before the cross was carried forward to it. And all of the wrong that has occurred since the cross up to this present day is brought back to it in order that for all who will receive God's gift in the cross, their wrongdoing is dealt with in a just and satisfactory way. It is paid for. It has been made right. There is no longer any unfairness to it. The penalty has been paid. There's nothing left, nothing more to be paid. And for those who don't receive the offer of the cross, Christ has promised that when he returns, he will hold them accountable in the final judgment. But either way, it means that God is handling all of the issues of injustice that we could ever experience. We don't need to worry about what's unfair. Vengeance is God's. He will repay, the scriptures promise us, either at the cross or in the final judgment. We don't need to worry about it. Church in the cross, God has answered his greatest critics, both from outside of the church and from inside of it. As a result of Christ's work upon the cross, no one can any longer accuse God of condoning evil or of moral indifference or of being unjust. The cross demonstrates with profound vividness both his justice in judging sin and his mercy in justifying the sinner. Because of Christ's death upon the cross, God is both just and the justifier for those who believe in him. He is able to bestow a righteous status on the unrighteous without compromising his own righteousness, which allows us all to wait in hope and in the sure and certain expectation of the world that we all cry out for when we see that life is not fair. Amen. Each week here at Redeemer Church, we spend a few moments after the Word of God has been preached to rest in that Word. And so in the moments that follow, I invite you to allow the Spirit of God to speak to you, um, however He's speaking this day.